morning and welcome to Rising. We have just another fantastic show for all of you today. Brianna, what's going on? Well, Jordan Charrington and Denise Long will weigh on, on the media's coverage of the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. And we're going to look at the hand Facebook had in a teenager's abortion prosecution. Plus, Tara Palmieri breaks down the significance of the Epstein judge connection that signed off the Mar-a-Lago raid. But first, yesterday's press briefing had reporters asking a lot of questions about Mar-a-Lago and the role the White House played, if any. Fox reporter Peter Ducey hit Karine Jean-Pierre with the big question of the day. Let's watch that. Is this administration weaponizing the Justice Department and the FBI against political opponents? Peter, the president believes in the rule of law. The president believes in the independence of the Department that's, of Justice. That's a yes or no? Just no, that is, House. no, it's a yes or a no for you. I'm answering the question. You may not like it, but I'm answering the question I'm and I'm, no. Nope. I'm answering the question and I'm telling you that we are not going to comment on a criminal investigation. The president has been very clear. I laid out what his thoughts were back on January 7th in 2021 about how he saw the Department of Justice. And I'm just going to leave it there. We are not going to comment from here, from this White House, on a criminal investigation that is currently happening. Jean-Pierre maintained that the White House did not know about this and was not briefed on it, according to a friend of the show, Philip Wegman. So that, I don't know, does that, is that believable that... Uh... Yes, I think it's perfectly believable, and it's not responsible for all of the reporters that have been speculating to the contrary to do so. What's so odd is that her choice of how to answer that question. If she's maintaining that the White House didn't know this raid was happening before it happened, then... The question, is the White House weaponizing the Justice Department, is an easy one. No, there was no coordination per her own answer. Moreover, the question is sort of a subjective one. If I say, you know, uh, you know I, I think that we should have a $15 minimum wage because there's poor people in America, and you, you, know, you, you accuse me of like weaponizing somebody's poverty or, or treating somebody as a prop, that's a subjective statement. And I can genuinely believe I'm saying what I'm saying, what I'm saying and you're, you can believe that I'm doing so right. appropriately. Usually, so it's weird for her not to be able to say, no, of course I'm not. Usually the, right, usually the yes or Yes or no are like gotcha things, but in this right. case, she should have just said no. Like, yeah, is, is the Biden administration weaponizing the Justice Department against political opponents? And she made it sound like it was more complicated than yes right. or no. She could have just said no. Just say no. They are not doing it. From her perspective, they're not doing right. that. Of course they're going to say they're not doing that. But this that. does feel more like just um, bad comms and necessarily right. uh, uh, nefarious uh, actions. You think the Justice Department really did not let President Biden know that they were going to do this? I, I don't know. I don't have any reason not to believe that. I mean, what reason would there be? Does, it, does Merrick Garland know they're going to do this? Well, you know, Peter Ducey should have asked that question. Right. I, if, if the attorney general doesn't, I would think the attorney general would know. And he works for, I mean, he's appointed by President Biden. I, this, this, this was a big, like, this was a big deal. This isn't well, some people a were raid like if, any if other. Ron DeSantis knew as the governor of Florida. You right, know? so that he could put out, like, a militia or something. <laughs> She's obviously not going to do. Uh, well, well, 
also there is no. I did see some speculation like that. Why wouldn't you know yeah. how Ron DeSantis should have sent in the whoever the national the Florida <laughs> Florida uh, uh, police officers or something. Well, also I mean Ron DeSantis has been supportive in his statements, but there's obviously also a conflict of interest if they both decide to run for president. It's not yeah. entirely clear how this uh, generalized support for Donald Trump that we've seen from Republicans since this happened yesterday uh, is going to hold as people start to announce their. Uh, broader political ambitions. Well, I find it interesting, and I tweeted something to this effect yesterday. Everyone is basically pretending, what they're claiming about this is the opposite of what they actually feel, because mm -hmm. most elected Republicans want Trump to quietly fade from the headlines, go away. They know that Trump himself is a distraction. They have winning issues without Trump. Uh, inflation, although things are getting a little bit better, uh, the kind of you know, instability of the of the Biden regime. They don't need Trump for that. They don't want to malign him. The voters really like him. They just want him to quietly go away. Mm -hmm. So, and, and meanwhile, Democrats, and even more so, I guess, the mainstream media, they want Trump to be front page news every single day until we all go extinct. But they're pretending like they think he's this existential threat to democracy, and it would be best if he, like, you know, snapped his fingers and vanished Thanos style. So everyone is, what everybody wants is the opposite of what they're saying. Yeah. Republicans want him to just go away, but they have to act like this is the greatest injustice of all time. That's very fascinating. Yeah, to well, me. no one's being honest with you. We'll, is my see, point. we'll see if they regret what they asked for. Well, Ducey pressed Jean Pierre on whether Biden considers Trump a political rival, and she said this. Do you consider Donald Trump to be a political rival of President Biden? I'm not going to speak to that from here. But you talk about Trump all the time. So do you consider him to be... Eh, I don't talk about Trump all the time. Trump certainly considers Biden to be a political rival. Following the raid, Trump released this video on Truth Social. We are a nation where free speech is no longer allowed, where crime is rampant like never before, where the economy has been collapsing, where more people died of COVID in 2021 than in 2020. We are a nation that is allowing Iran to build a massive nuclear weapon and China to use the trillions and trillions of dollars it's taken from the United States to build a military to rival our own. We are a nation that over the past two years is no longer respected or listened to all around the world. And we are a nation that is hostile to liberty and freedom and faith. We are a nation whose economy is floundering, whose stores are not stocked, whose deliveries are not coming, and whose educational system is ranked at the bottom of every list. We are a nation that in many ways has become a joke. But soon we will have greatness again. It was hardworking patriots like you who built this country, and it is hardworking patriots like you who are going to save our country. Mm. He's running. Yeah, I mean, he is absolutely <laughs> running. Well, and I loved all the speculation. I was watching CNN yesterday for the first time in a little while, and uh, yeah, the the anchor was saying, "Oh, does this mean? Does this mean he might? He could declare as soon as you know tomorrow or something. He might declare even faster." Like. Yeah, we know you want him to. Like, they want him to so badly because they need him. They need him. Well, yeah. It's this pathological kind of Joker-Batman sort of I, relationship that the media has to Trump and, and, and colors all of this coverage. All yeah. of the coverage you see is of people who are obsessed with him and need him for their own business models. Yeah, I, I think that's true. What, what I noticed when looking at that, 
not quite an ad, is that he does something smart, which is that he offers an accurate diagnosis, a largely accurate diagnosis of what's going on with America's problems. I would push back here and there. I do think there has been really good reporting about how the coverage of crime has vastly outstripped the crime rates and that there is not the spike that people believe to be happening. But of course, crime is a routine issue that people are concerned about no matter what the context or who the president is. You know, the economy on and on down the line. No one will quibble with the fact that our education system is not top tier and all the other kinds of things. What I really hope we don't have is another election cycle where everyone points at problems and no one articulates legitimate solutions. Because the problem here is that even though I think that sometimes Republicans have a better diagnosis of what's going on, their voters are not served by people who get up there and just say the other guy is bad and then get into office and do what Trump did last time, which is to do very little to actually uplift the interest of working class people. He's been president before and he can't just rest on the idea that he is going to do something great. He is going to make America great again. He had four years to do so. And arguably part of the world that we're living in is a consequence of him having been the most recent person at 1600 Pennsylvania as well. And that's not like all of those things he mentioned were perfect for the four years he was president and then they suddenly overnight uh, became bad. Correct. (laughs) Well, News Nation's Dan Abrams and ABC's George Stephanopoulos discussed the raids this discussed the raid yesterday and agreed that there has to be more to the raid than what the FBI is leading on. You have got to believe that the highest levels of the Justice the, Department signed the off. The White on House it. says they didn't know about it, but clearly Christopher Ray, the FBI director, would have no known. doubt Christopher Ray knew about I it. I guess the open question would be did Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, know about it, or his deputy Lisa Monica? I've got to believe that Merrick Garland knew about this. I, you have to. I mean, when you're talking about um, going to the former president of the United States home, The implications are so significant that you have to believe that Merrick Garland knew about it and and specifically that they wouldn't tell the president of the United States about it. I mean, it's for the same reason that Merrick Garland needs to know about it is the reason that I think they want to make sure that the president doesn't know about it and isn't involved to send this kind of FBI team to the former president's home. There has to be something more than just a Presidential Records Act violation. They have to know something that we don't know about yet. And just last night, Abrams assumed that the investigation must be related to January 6th because of this new development. Republican Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania says tonight that the FBI has confiscated his cell phone. He provided a statement to News Nation that says, quote, This morning, while traveling with my family, three FBI agents visited me and seized my cell phone. They made no attempt to contact my lawyer, who would have made arrangements for them to have my phone if that was their wish. I'm outraged, though not surprised, that the FBI, under the direction of Merrick Gartland's DOJ, would seize the phone of a sitting member of Congress. Now, here's why this is important. Congressman Perry is a critical player in the January 6th investigation and was a vocal proponent of President Trump's various claims of election fraud. And based on the timing, that leads me to believe that the search at Mar-a-Lago was almost certainly connected to the broader effort to overturn the election and not just some record-keeping violation. I mean, again, a lot of speculation. We'll see what happens. I mean, what I think that's a good guess, but we don't know. But well, it's a good I, guess. <laughs> the way the gears are turning, I'm sure we'll find out a lot about this soon. But uh, one part of this that I'm, I'm also really curious about is the implication of Joe Biden knowing 
in advance. People keep asking the question, did Joe Biden know about it? And the subtext that if he did, it was somehow politically directed or politically motivated. But obviously, that's not necessarily true. If it turns out that there was, you know, some, you know, obviously there was, it was there was a warrant. There was some underlying evidence um, that gave rise to the search. Well, but you know that warrants can be given they, under they the most can. basic. They, nonsensical pretext. They absolutely can, but and some, are routinely for some, something was Americans. offered up here, and one would one would assume, and this is what people have been saying over and over again. One would assume that, given the high profile nature of this, they can't just run ramshod over people the way that they do, who are much less visible uh, and much less powerful than the president of the United States of America. But you know. What is the, the people are, I think, asking these questions without actually putting a finer point on the idea that just because even if Joe Biden did know about it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's politically motivated. At the end of the day, it can be the case that something helps a person politically and also is the right thing to do because there was a violation of the law. And I'm much more interested in finding out this underlying question of what exactly the search was about and what, in fact, was found, and if it was, in fact, pretextual or a legitimate search. That's what we need to know, and it's really all just spe- speculation until until we do know that. Yeah. If, it's, if there's nothing more than, you know, some records were taken and they were not classified properly, I think everyone's going to say that this was a major breach of, of the kind of norms of, you know, not like, not, not, uh, a former president, uh, you know, going after them, uh, hounding them. Now, of course, Trump supporters called for Hillary to be locked up, I mean, but this, she wasn't. This, but this she wasn't. The they didn't. They didn't go after her. Or do anything. Does riding the ship require saying that Trump was treated poorly, or does it require treating other presidents and presidential right. candidates with an even hand? Right. I mean, that's the uh, that's the hard question because on one hand, you know, if Trump committed very serious crimes, yes, he should be prosecuted. He should go to jail. I, like he should only the only his most ardent and probably even his most ardent supporters won't disagree with that they'll just say they would just uh contest that whatever the thing is is something he actually did yeah but in theory i have to presume that almost everyone agrees he committed very serious crimes he should be prosecuted for them and put them in jail but now there's always that lesser category of like procedural nonsense that everyone can be guilty of if they're subject of an investigation because mm. there's a lot of ways to trip you up to to get you to obstruct justice or accidentally say something wrong during an interview and then they can prove oh but actually you slipped up with your That's words true. this is something that happens to every from from you know, people with very little access to legal recourse and people with actually access to a lot of legal recourse. Steven Donziger. <clears throat> right, all sorts of people. So so if it's just that, if they're just trying to screw him on something like that, I think I think the response is, is it's reasonable to be to think that is a major breach of kind of the norms of constitutional democratic governance. But if it's more serious than that, then yes, they need to do something. And that needs to be made clear to the American people pretty soon. Yeah. Um, or else uh, we're just going to have this, you know, constant... Um, sort of narrative about, wow, what is going on? Yeah, yeah, it's dangerous. All right, I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next, Brianna. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, all the libs are mad at Bernie Sanders again. Why? Well, because he acknowledged that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act won't really have much of an impact on inflation, but it will provide big tax breaks for the already enormously profitable fossil fuel industry. Take a listen. That this bill, as currently written, includes a huge giveaway to the fossil fuel industry, 
both in the reconciliation bill that we are considering and in a side deal that was just made public a few days ago. Mr. President, under this legislation, the fossil fuel industry will receive billions of dollars in new tax breaks and subsidies over the next 10 years on top of the $15 billion in tax breaks and corporate welfare that they already receive every year. Moreover, Bernie had the audacity to push for the bill to include more policies that would help working Americans afford health care, chiefly a cap on the price of insulin. Unsurprisingly, no Republicans supported the bill. Also unsurprising, the overwhelming majority of Democrats voted down Bernie's amendments to improve the bill by, for example, cutting Medicare drug prices by 50 percent expanding Medicare, extending the child tax credits that had reduced child poverty by 50% during the pandemic, and cutting the corporate tax breaks for fossil fuel co corporations. You know, the companies that are charging you an arm and a leg at the pump. Don't worry, my libertarian friends, neither corporate party has any risk of actually doing anything anytime soon. Now, if you think if I'm, I'm being too cynical, here's what you absolutely must understand about this process. And believe me, they're hoping you don't understand this. Even if you don't like Bernie or socialism or progressive populist policies, Democrats have done something extremely cynical, extremely sordid, and very common. They have exploited the wonky Senate rules so that they could duck responsibility for voting no on overwhelmingly popular policies you want. Let's face it, Democrats like to say they care about people. Democrats claim it's Republicans that prevent them from, you know, actually helping people. And they continue to make this claim even when they have the House, the Senate, and the presidency. So how do they get away with this? Well, of course, over the course of the Biden administration, corporate Democrats have used Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema as an excuse for why Biden could not pass his agenda. But what about when Sinema and Manchin are on board? because they're faced with a must-pass bill that's chock-full of the kinds of corporate giveaways that corporate Dems relish. If they want to pass a bill without doing yucky, donor-angering things like adding hearing, vision, and dental to Medicare coverage, they'd have to figure out how to cut those things out of the bill without looking like they're, you know, cutting things out of the bill. This is where the parliamentarian comes in. Now, you'll remember that the Senate parliamentarian is a relatively low-level administrative employee whose job it is to offer non-binding guidance on what types of spending can be passed via the reconciliation process. If you only have 50 votes and you want to pass a bill via budget reconciliation, which of course avoids needing the filibuster-proof 60 votes, it has to satisfy the Byrd rule. And the Byrd rule basically says the bill has to pertain to revenue. It has to be primarily budgetary in nature. So ostensibly, the parliamentarian can say, hey, actually, you need 60 votes here and damn any legislation. But it's important to note that what the parliamentarian says is actually purely advisory. It can be ignored. If the parliamentarian were to advise that some part of a bill needed to be cut because it didn't satisfy the Byrd rule, Senate leadership could either ignore her advice or fire the parliamentarian. George Bush, presiding over a similarly divided 50-50 Senate, fired his parliamentarian after he refused to approve of his deficit-bloating tax cuts for the rich. Bush fought 
for what he believed in, which was adding $500 billion to the deficit. God bless him. But unfortunately, you can't expect that kind of maverick behavior from the Democrats. Au contraire. Over the weekend, Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough advised Democrats to cut the parts of the spending bill that would punish drug makers for inflating their prices. The lever reported that this could have saved $40 billion. She also advised Democrats to cut the legislation which would cap insulin costs at $35 a month for people on private insurance plans. What did Chuck Schumer do? Did he ignore her like George Bush might have done? Did he fire her? No. He pretended as though this random low-level aide's opinion was binding authority, and he stripped these life-saving provisions from the bill. Now, when a provision is stripped from a bill, it takes 60 votes to get it back in. So by not fighting the parliamentarian, Democrats, who only have 50 votes in the Senate, create cover for themselves. Every single Democrat can grandstand in front of their voters and vote to add the provisions back in without any danger of those parts of the bill actually making it back into the bill. The bill and having the bill actually pass and therefore upsetting the lobbyists that fill their campaign coffers. And that's exactly what happened. All 50 Democrats voted to keep those provisions in the bill. Seven Republicans even got on board, but praise be to Edna Cigna and the Temple of Private Health Insurance, there just so happened to be three too few votes to help the American people. Think I'm being too cynical? Listen to this reporting from The Lever. Eight of the Senate's top 10 recipients of donations from the pharmaceutical and health products industry are Democrats. That includes Kirsten Sinema, who raked in over half a million dollars from the industry since 2017. She's also benefited from a flood of supportive TV ads from a big pharma front group. Chuck Schumer raked in more than $289,000 from donors in the pharmaceutical and health products industry. And the industry funneled more than $61 million to Democratic candidates in the last two election cycles, far more than it gave to GOP politicians during the same period. But the grand old party is hardly off the hook. Keep in mind that if Republicans wanted to make sure their constituents didn't have to pay 10 times the cost for insulin as compared to our Canadian neighbors to the north, they could have simply voted to put the insulin cap revision back in the bill. Seven Republicans did, and God bless them for it. But what about the other 43? Democrats are fundamentally able to play this game where they use fake procedural barriers to cover for their own corruption only because Republicans go in on it. And while I know conservative populists are very busy dealing with important issues like whether Cardi B lyrics are too dirty for radio and whether drag brunches are corrupting our youth, I beg of conservative voters to spare just a few moments for priorities like making sure people don't die because they can't afford their insulin copays. People like Josh Wilkerson, who at age 26 aged out of his stepfather's insurance coverage and couldn't afford his $1,200 copay. Or Alex Smith, who died alone in his room at age 26 because he couldn't afford insulin. One last thing. The worst thing about Libs being mad at Bernie for the wrong reasons is that there is a good reason to be mad at Bernie. He arguably didn't go far enough. 
ultimately, he was going to vote for the inflation bill, even though he knows it won't really address inflation, even though he knows it's a giveaway to the fossil fuel industry, even though he knows it represents just a small fraction of what Biden promised to do for the American people, just a sliver of the mandate that got Biden elected. Bernie could have simply chosen like Manchin and Cinema, to doom Biden's agenda if it didn't include basic, overwhelmingly popular, cost-saving and life-saving policies, the likes of which Schumer stripped to please big pharma donors. But he won't. Bernie is unwilling to use that ultimate leverage, just like progressives in the House have been unwilling to hold the line and vote down must-pass corporate-friendly legislation until it at least includes policies that are both popular with all political factions and, of course, are life-saving. This exact thing happened last year with the $15 minimum wage. Biden promised Bernie he'd fight for it as Bernie dropped out of the primary early. Squad members swore last January that they were saving their political capital for the fight for 15. And what happened? Biden telegraphed about two weeks before the parliamentarian's advisory opinion came down that a $15 minimum wage would likely be struck from the American Rescue Plan. And lo and behold, what do you know? She happened to do exactly that. The American Rescue Plan was must-pass legislation. Vaccines could not be distributed. COVID relief could not be provided. The economy could not be buoyed without that bill. If progressives and populist conservatives had held the line, they could have forced through policies that actually work for working people. Working people like the 60% of Florida voters who voted for Trump and a $15 minimum wage at the same time. But instead, Democrats rolled over, just like they always do. They claim that getting something is better than nothing. And while doing so, ignore that we have only crumbs exactly because they're unwilling to play hardball. They're going to keep doing this because they can. They rely on our ignorance of procedure to get away with it. They think we're too stupid, too busy, too desperate to notice. And so far, they've been right. But despite what Biden says, things can fundamentally change. We have an opportunity, as we always do, to put real pressure on our politicians and expose the ways they're able to duck and cover and find excuses for why they're not doing these overwhelmingly popular things. I say it all the time. We don't live in a democracy. The studies have shown that there's absolutely no correlation between what voters want and what uh, politicians prioritize once they get in Congress. And this is how they get away with it. And they're, they really do hope that we just can't figure it out. We won't know what they're doing. They grandstand and celebrate these uh, minor victories on the margins, which are really mostly just giveaways to the people that fill their campaign coffers. And I'm curious, Robbie, why don't you think with all the populist energy that's coming up on the right, that there isn't more attention played to these issues, which are overwhelmingly popular with Republican voters. Why isn't there that kind of Tea Party energy to get Republicans to at least deliver on those things? The two-party system is really, mm. really bad. Mm. It's really bad, and there isn't a, there isn't enough, there isn't inter-party competition, or there isn't, well, the Republican Party is failing me, so I'm going to go to this similar, you know, on the spectrum of parties. I can move, you know, one party this way or one party that way. The only other party is the Democrats, whom they hate, mm -hmm. uh, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it really thwarts any effective change. Um, it's... Uh, it's, it's a bad thing. It's yeah, a I think bad, that's right. Bad system, which is why I, I think we should support, uh, in theory at least, even if you you know quibble with its um, 
its policies, things like the Forward Party, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, in trying to change the actual dynamics. The system is so fundamentally broken, yeah. so frustratingly broken. Yeah, people but, um, like to say that third parties uh, aren't going anywhere and it's a waste of your vote, but I think history uh, has proven to many folks that voting for the two-party duopoly is similarly futile. So I appreciate Bernie, of course, pointing out something I've pointed out many times, which is the Inflation Reduction Act <laughs> and how much inflation reducing it's actually going to do. Say what you want about Bernie Sanders. He's an honest broker. All right. Thank you, Brianna. We'll have more rising right after this. Fox News host Jesse Waters reported last night that Nancy Pelosi's controversial visit to Taiwan included one previously unreported guest. Let's watch. So what does Pauly Jr. do all day? Well, last week, Nancy snuck little Pauly on her plane to Asia. His name wasn't listed as part of the official delegation. They didn't want you to know Paul went to Asia with his mom. But if you look closely at the photos, there he is. Pauly P. Jr., about as unqualified as Hunter, with all the big dogs there in Asia. And if you thought Hunter Biden's business deals were shady, just wait. Pauly Jr. is on the payroll of two lithium mining companies. And Asia just happens to be a lithium gold mine. And Taiwan just happens to be a world leader in lithium battery production. <laughs> He's also heavily invested in Singapore's energy sector. Wasn't that another stop on Nancy's trip? Oh, it was. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, so obviously the implication being that, uh, and we've been trying to come up with a reason for this visit so because it, it seemed counter to the Biden administration's uh, foreign policy desires. They didn't really want her to do it. She did it anyway. We don't know why. We're trying to come up with a reason. So one reason could be that, you know, it's good business, good money for her family, for her son, in his business interests. Uh, doesn't it, doesn't it, sound totally implausible, it, to it, be frank. It could be. Lots of things could be. <laughs> Nepotism is bad. Everyone should agree on that. It's weird for this to be a political conversation when we just had Donald Trump in the White House making his son-in-law ahead of, like, Middle East affairs. <laughs> so I, I, it's difficult for me because it's but that very, one doesn't make this correct. No, it's very, that's what I'm saying. It's very easy for me to sit here and say everybody's bad. But the interest Trump's, in the Clintons, story, Pelosi's, uh, Biden's, 100%, all bad. Obama seems to be the only one who wouldn't do this, and perhaps because only because his, his kids, kids are aren't old age. enough yet. <laughs> right. We'll see what the the Malia uh, Empire. Well, they're going to be like fashion influencers or something, probably. I don't know. I think the little one has a good little head on her shoulders. I don't know. Right. Harvard might 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 not uh, have a good effect on the older one. But look, the the reality is that this is what rich people do. This should not be a partisan conversation. This is what rich people yeah. have been doing since the time of memorial. And I just wish folks were a little even-handed about calling this stuff out. Well, I do too, but they never are. But I don't know that it's just a partisan conversation, be what, because Jesse Waters is the one pointing it out? Yes. Be little Polly, the Fresh Prince graphic, wow. I get it. It's, it's TV. It's intended right. to be entertaining. But the point here is that Nancy Pelosi is one of the least popular politicians in America. She's not especially popular among uh, Democrats, but she's certainly very unpopular among Republicans. Republicans regularly put her in their attack ads uh, to try to convince people to vote for the conservative candidate in various races. As much as the progressives are maligned for hurting the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi's uh, disfavor among Republicans 
in these kinds of races is much more pronounced. And I get why you want to go after her and knock your socks off. If it turns out that there is some, you know, nepotism or bad behavior uh, here that he should have been disclosed, that he was riding on a, a, a government paid flight for his own personal, whatever they can dig up. I don't give a fig. You're here for it. Doesn't matter to me. I just wish that the same people who did this were even-handedly also criticizing um, what Donald Trump and every other rich person's time immemorial has done. All right, sure. (laughs) Well, the House Speaker is facing criticism for this apparent verbal gaffe she made while speaking to NBC News yesterday about her visit to Taiwan. Let's check it out. We still support the one China policy. We go there to acknowledge the status quo is what our policy is. There was nothing disruptive about that. It was only about saying China is one of the freest societies in the world. Don't take it from me. That's from Freedom House. Let's it's talk a, strong a little democracy, bit. Yeah. Courageous people. And, and it, it just, I don't know why it is, uh, except there's some commercial interest who would like to diminish uh, the relationship. So she clearly meant Taiwan, Taiwan though. Yeah, I, Taiwan. That was just a, I guess that's a gaffe, but it, it's not really, it's, it's just a, it's a slip of the tongue. Like she meant, yeah. to, she said the wrong word. It happens. Those of us on TV, we do that all the Guilty. time. I'm sure I do it plenty of times <laughs> a day. So I don't, I don't really think it's, yeah, and I saw that clipped and made fun of by maybe the GOP and other like conservative people on social media and it's, it, that did seem unfair. I mean, she clearly meant Taiwan. She, a bunch of Democrats, and a bunch of Republicans all conspired to make sure that you have to pay enormous t- prices for your insulin, right? Like, that is all happening. Mm-hmm. A million other things are happening right now in the ether. They're, they're passing something called an Inflation Reduction Act that has nothing to do with inflation and gives out, you know, millions in tax cuts to the fossil fuel industry while you're still paying zillions at the pump. All of this mm-hmm. is happening. But so much of the discourse is caught up with, oh, my gosh. Nancy Pelosi mixed up her words. Not Nancy Pelosi is corrupt. Not Nancy Pelosi not hasn't a, had a debate with a primary challenger in like right. 30 years. Or not, And not even a, a substantive criticism or, in, or investigation or exploration right. of her visit there and, what, and, the, and the underlying foreign policy Correct. realities of it, but just that she said the wrong word. Correct. Dumb. And I know there's an appetite for it. And I'm not saying that liberals don't do this kind of thing. I was watching MSNBC together. You better not say that liberals uh, don't do this. <laughs> fascist, fascist, fascist. Right. Fascist, fascist, oh, fascist, fascist. he's a Republican. Fascist. He's a Republican <laughs> okay. on MSNBC. Of course. Because that's what Is there any other kind? (laughs) (laughs) Right. MSNBC is the home for never Trump Republicans. It's ridiculous. You know, I couldn't fight my way on there with uh, the amount of weapons that uh, Biden sends to Ukraine. But uh, conservatives can get on there just by saying, hey, I don't like Donald Trump. So this is is where we are. And I just, I really, really, really wish people could keep their eyes on the ball. All right. Before we go, we wanted to quickly react to Pelosi's take on the raid of Mar-a-Lago. Let's watch. I, as others, learned on my phone that that had happened, so I don't know very much about it. Uh, But again, I'm sure that uh, information will be revealed, and when it does, we'll find out what they were looking for. It seems to have something to do with presidential documents, but I really am not in a position to talk about it because all I know is what's in the public domain. And that's generally what I've heard from Democrats. I actually saw Bernie Sanders had a similar uh, comment on either CNN or MSNBC last night. Yeah. CNN, that's what I was watching. The people's skepticism of that is interesting to me. I do think it's kind of normal for these kinds of things to be kind of closely held, in part because you don't want it to get out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I don't 
necessarily think Nancy Pelosi would have known. Yeah, that, that seems very plausible to me. Whether or not Joe Biden knew, I also don't think is implausible. If information comes out to the contrary, then we'll, we'll, we'll learn about it. But also, I think Merrick Garland and Christopher Ray knew. Yeah, but it also doesn't get to the bottom. Just, just because X, Y, or Z person knew didn't mean right. that it was necessarily politically motivated. So I think the jury's still out on that. We just have to find out what the basis of the warrant was and what was actually uncovered in the search. Mm. All right, well, we'll have more rising right after this. MSNBC's Morning Joe had this to say about the Republicans connected to Donald Trump and involved in January 6th. Let's listen. Because they're fascists, like people that are making the threats, the people that helped Donald Trump on January 6th. The people that were talking about coming to, to D.C., that it was going to be crazy, that it was going to, wild, going to be wild, they were going to charge the cap. They're fascists. And so they're making fascist threats, and we need to do what the United States has always done. Uh, we need to confront fascism and, and defeat it. So everybody that's freaking out over fascists being fascists, well, guess what? That's what fascists do. <laughs> CEO of Status Quo, Jordan Cherryton, and Newsweek contributor Denise Long join now to weigh in. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Now, Jordan, I know it's tough to, com to compete with that substantive analysis, but you tweeted yesterday. <laughs> separate from the partisan pro-Trump versus anti-Trump reactions to the Trump raid, meaning the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago, pretty striking the folks giddy about going after Trump were crickets about Obama and the DOJ not going after Bush or bankers that destroyed the global economy. Tell us more about that comparison. Yeah, I mean, hey. Kudos for uh, going after Trump. Uh, you know, people on both sides of the aisle will either love it or hate it. But uh, these cosmopolitan elitists don't seem to feel the DOJ should enforce, enforce uh, financial crimes, uh, you know, fraud uh, that de paralyzes the global economy, uh, crushes working people, forecloses on people. Uh, they were pretty much crickets on that. And, of course, uh, were silent on, uh, you know, Obama once he said, yeah, it's time to move forward, not look backwards. So it's interesting what outrages them, uh, what kind of gets them fired up. Uh, it's not crimes that might affect working people, uh, and it's not crimes that actually lead to endless war. Uh, so that that's really what I was driving at there. Some Someone who's not been very silent lately, former U.S. Secretary of State and Democratic nominee in 2016, Hillary Clinton has certainly had an interesting reaction to yesterday's raid. She's been posting and selling merchandise that says, but her emails. Clinton tweeted, every but her emails, hat or shirt sold helps Onward Together Partners defend our democracy, build a progressive bench, and fight for our values. Just saying. Uh, Denise, uh, you know, is this a fair comparison? Uh, the I, I think, you know, maybe it might be. I've, I've seen people making it. The uh, the criticism of Hillary Clinton and actually, right, the FBI looking into her for, you know, not properly classifying or securing um, emails on the right server, et cetera. Is, is that a is that comparison? Uh, correct to what it, what Donald Trump is being accused of uh, so far with the you know taking documents that were you know being wrongly classified or should have been left for the archives. What do you think? 
so the question becomes, is that actually the case? I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what they use to actually justify the warrant. And if uh, they ask for the documents back and the former president refused to give the documents back, uh, just what are the circumstances? I think those things are unclear. And I do think you know, absent them requesting the documents back and Trump and or his staff refusing uh, to give them back and to keep them, that seems different than what Hillary Clinton did in regard to the server and all of that and the destruction of the devices and the emails and, and, and all. It, it, it seems different to me. And to the larger point, I think people, while they're celebrating, uh, you know, one-upmanship, you know, gotcha here, gotcha there, what we need to be looking at is the integrity of how our federal uh, enforcement and our alphabet agencies are leveraged against people in power, but also about like how they're leveraged against or for the benefit of the average American citizen. And I think too many people are drunk on uh, seeing the opposition bleed rather than looking at how our government is being used to our benefit or not. Yeah, I think that is what's so frustrating about weighing in on this thing as a leftist is that, yes, there's the hypocrisy of people who say, you know, blue lives matter, but are now posting the American flag mm -hmm. upside down and saying we've got to abolish the FBI. Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing that. Candace Owens was saying we have to abolish the FBI. But there's this other point, which is that if anything, you know, this is what Jordan was saying. I would like there to be more instances where people who are affluent and powerful had to play by the same rules as everybody else and fewer instances where agencies were weaponized against the poor. So there has been a lot of, I think, justified discourse among conservatives about whether or not hiring um, the large number of new IRS agents is going to actually result in affluent people being uh, held accountable under the tax code and having to pay their fair share, or whether it will continue the pattern of work working class people, lower income people being the subject of audits. And same here, it's, it is less, I think, a conversation, it should be less a conversation about whether or not um, you know Donald Trump should be the target of this investigation, at least until and unless the warrant is proved to be unsubstantiated, a more a conversation about why we haven't seen this kind of thing in the past. Jordan, do you think we will see more of an appetite that, that for, for these kind of investigations of former presidents? Are Democrats opening the door to these kinds of um, you know uh, warrants and searches of former presidents or, or presidential candidates' homes? with this search. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the legal expert you are, but I, I think it is important. Uh, we don't know yet if this is exclusively about the mishandling of re records. I find it hard to believe that the FBI went in commando style over classified records. There might be more here. But uh, yeah, I mean, everything has been heightened. Everything has become a culture war and everything has become, you know, part of kind of red team first blue team. So if the Republicans retake the House uh, based on you know, the FBI going into Mar-a-Lago, even if it ends up that it's justified, I mean, we could be seeing them, you know, raid Biden, uh, you know, President Biden uh, based on or trying to, excuse me, uh, trying to uh, do that over Hunter Biden or a plethora of other things. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, I think partisanship uh, kind of uh, particularly kind of uh, Republican extremism, not that the Democrats are innocent here, uh, trying to weaponize, uh, you know, agencies and things like that uh, definitely could be heightened, even if this proves to be justified. You know, Denise, uh, Bree is right that you've seen a lot of chatter from uh, Trump sympathetic figures, Republicans, et cetera, in the 
time since this raid has happened about uh, reforming or even abolishing uh, certain law enforcement agencies, you know, bringing DOJ, FBI, et cetera, under, under control. Um, there's all this attention paid to violations of or perceived violations of Donald Trump's civil liberties. And what I always say in reaction to that is, what about everyone else? Can Republicans stay on, you know, on, on the ball and actually when they take power back or work with Democrats to actually rein in some of these law enforcement abuses? Because these are the same people, and, and this is by partisan that reauthorized the Patriot Act and everything else every time it comes up for a vote. And then they complain like, oh, no, G-men are, you know, banging down Donald Trump's doormat. Well, you authorized that. You voted for that. You supported that. They only care about it when it when it's Trump. So can there be any sustained movement? I would support it. I would be totally in favor of it for reining in these abusive law enforcement agencies. They seem to only care when it's Trump. Well, I, I would submit to you that nobody has cared over the last, you know, 50 years or so, including uh, Democrats who oversaw uh, some significant abuses of uh, the FBI on American citizens as well. So none of them have really taken a look at how our federal agencies that are designed to enforce and provide intelligence for national security are weaponized against the American people and uh, internationally, and no one has seemed to want to own our responsibility to ensure that that weaponization does not actually happen. Uh, you know, it is rich that folks who are so pro, uh, you know, law and order when it comes down to what's happening in urban environments and when it comes down to police accountability for, you know, surveilling civilians are, you know, decrying the United States. And I wonder if any of them happen to be caught with something that they shouldn't have in Russia, if folks will be uh, celebrating that they got caught. Uh, so there's hypocrisy. Uh, all around uh, that needs to be addressed across the, the spectrum politically. Yeah, I think that's right. But I have to ask you, Jordan, I mean, I, I agree that Democrats and Republicans alike have largely uh, turned a blind eye to this kind of a thing, but the left has not. And many people on the left have used this opportunity to raise concerns about any number of COINTELPRO attacks that have often historically targeted members of less left groups, communists, socialists, people like Martin Luther King and Fred Hampton, all traced back uh, their harassment and death, murder, to organizations like the FBI. Is this an opportunity for the left to be uh, drawing those, heightening those contrasts and distinctions and potentially getting some um, allyship from members of the conservative community who are perhaps newly aware to the vulnerability of regular people to these state agencies? Absolutely. I mean, uh, as Joe Scarborough is hyperventilating about fascism, maybe somebody should tell about uh, the Standing Rock protests in mm. 2016, uh, where Obama's FBI Department of Homeland Security surveilled Native Americans and their white allies, infiltrated the camps with moles. I mean, The Intercept uh, had great reporting on here, uh, you know, was working with the local police there to brutalize, uh, you know, uh, nonviolent um, protesters unarmed uh, with, you know, mace, tear gas, rubber bullets, grenades. I mean, I was there covering it. Uh, that was actually corporate fascism. The police working with uh, the fossil fuel companies to uh, batter down uh, dissent. I didn't hear Joe Scarborough, CNN, saying anything about it. Hell, mm -hmm. they cover it. So there's plenty of examples of, uh, you know, corporate fascism and, of course, what the FBI did with Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, 
um, indigenous leaders. I mean, Leonard Peltier is rotting in a prison for 45 years uh, over, you know, an FBI raid where they don't even have evidence. They, they still don't have actual evidence against him. Uh, so, yeah, plenty of examples of that. Oh, it would be great if we heard our elected leaders on the progressive side uh, to start speaking out on this while the rare instance where conservatives uh, want to pick a fight with the FBI. Yeah, going back to that clip of, you know, fascism, 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 fascism. Uh, Denise, I think a lot of, or some at least, Republicans, you know, will say that, okay, how, it, it's not plausible, it's not believable when Democrats and, and when the mainstream media contends that Donald Trump is this unique fascistic threat and, and thus, you know, every everything and anything that can be done to counter him from you know, from making him, trying to make him ineligible to run for re-election or, you know, raiding his, uh, his, his household, that can be done because he is a uniquely dangerous threat. He's the fascist, he's the Hitler, etc. But then, of course, there's a long history of Democrats in the media saying that about, you know, the previous however many Republicans. So it's like, a, is it a boy who cried wolf kind of scenario? Yeah, I think fascism has been fetishized in a way. <clears throat> Everybody wants to use it to just highlight something that they vehemently <laughs> disagree with. I, I think in some ways, one might argue if this uh, raid on a former president's home does not yield something significant on its face that they were looking for, or if they find something else that they can leverage to keep him out of office, is that not fascism. And I highly doubt that the current president's administration was unaware that our federal government was going to raid a former president's home. It just doesn't pass the sniff test for me. So there are ways that this could very significantly backfire on the Democrats if this uh, raid becomes uh, a political game that was played. And every person in America, regardless where you stand, on the political spectrum needs to raise all kind of hell about our government being used in that way. Mm. And yeah. not just for Donald Trump, but again, for all the reasons that everybody on this panel have stated about our government. We shouldn't fear our government, they should fear us. Yeah, well, of course, uh, the White House, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, denies that uh, Joe Biden was aware. And if we find out information to the contrary, we'll definitely be reporting on that. Thank you so much, uh, Denise and Jordan, for joining us today. Thank you. A 17-year-old teen and her mother are facing criminal charges in Nebraska after officials subpoenaed the teen's Facebook direct messages and found that she had an at-home abortion at 23 weeks, violating state law that bans the procedure after 20 weeks. Police in Nebraska subpoenaed Facebook for the teen's private chat, which allegedly showed she and her mother had bought an at-home abortion medication and disposed of the fetus after. Here to discuss is Kate Klonick, professor of internet law at St. John's University and fellow at the Brookings Institution. Kate, welcome. Thank you for having me. So walk us through exactly what is kind of novel or unprecedented here about the information that Facebook disclosed. Yeah, actually, there's very little that's novel about mm -hmm. this. This happens all the time in criminal investigations. Uh, there are subpoenas or there are search warrants that are served on Facebook or Meta or any type of platform that keeps your um, information uh, that actually just requests them to give over whatever they have uh, about 
uh, the crime or communications that you had around a certain type of crime. And that's exactly what happened here. I think that one of the things that is capturing people's imagination at the moment is that there is kind of a misconception that this was one of the moments that we've been hearing about that would happen about uh, about basically the platforms having access to your private information and the police using that in a post row world. And so I think that that is kind of, even though that's not exactly what's happening here, that is one of the things that is like kind of captured people's uh, headlines and minds at this moment. Well, it is because it's the case, uh, correct, that Facebook broadly cooperates with law enforcement like other companies. If they if they serve you a subpoena, if they ask for records, uh, you know, and, uh, except in rare circumstances, right, there are not there are not brave stands on behalf of these companies. They give they give law enforcement the records that are requested. Yep, that's exactly right. And there was a crime here under Nebraska law. Uh, 20 weeks is the cutoff, um, as you said previously. And so there really was nothing that uh, Facebook could have done besides going to bat against law enforcement. And if you look at the search warrant affidavits, there was no mention of abortion in any of the uh, search warrant affidavits. So it's not clear that like this would have set off any flags in the company, that this was a political issue. It's not clear that it is a political issue. Um, but again, it highlights something that everyone should be aware of, which is how to kind of how how this process works and that these companies work with law enforcement. Well, investigative reporting published in the markup reveals that Facebook is actively gathering data about people who visit crisis pregnancy center websites, including sensitive information like if they're considering abortion, looking to get a pregnancy test or emergency contraceptives. Now, this data gathering tool works even when user is logged out, uh, not logged into Facebook. It's intended actually to procure information for advertising purposes, right? The, the, the company's uh, plan here is not, well, it's, it's not nefarious in, in, the, in the way people would maybe describe it. If you, know, if you think the process of selling advertising is nefarious, then you'd say it's nefarious. But they're gathering this information because they want a more well-rounded portrait of the user so they can show them relevant ads, things they might likely to buy and, and make money. But we're now, you know, we're learning how that process can be used for law enforcement purposes um, on issues like this or other things. Is that correct? No, that's a perfect way of putting it. This is not some type of new, um, new kind of surveillance that companies are rolling out because they're anti-abortion or anything else. This is stuff that has been going on forever. Again, it's just becoming um, aware in most people's minds, frankly, now that abortion is possibly criminalized at such early stages, uh, at such at kind of at moments that we never had like kind of anticipated before. So there's a new criminal set of statutes and now there is a danger of kind of people feeling like they're the dolphins that are gonna get caught in the net or, you know, uh, there's kind of this idea that, um, as the markup kind of points out, that totally um, kind of benign advertising or business related, whether I roll my eyes with benign because it's like not clear, as you said, whether or not it's benign, but advertising related things will end up becoming um, in the service of law enforcement and surveillance. And that's just kind of something that's on the table in, uh, in a post-row world. 
So you said earlier that there's you know, nothing really uh, that Facebook can do, but isn't it the case that uh, if these messages were encrypted via end-to-end -end encryption, then the Facebook would not have been able to hand them over? And in fact, Facebook users can opt into it, but it's not the default setting until I think at some point next year that they're going to be moving to automatic end-to-end -end encryption? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a couple of really interesting things about Facebook Messenger, and if I can just bore you quickly with the details. When you're in browser on Facebook, it is integrated as part of the platform. Those are not possible to encrypt um, in browser settings for technical reasons I won't get into. But when you're using Messenger as a separate app on your phone, those are possible to opt into end-to-end -end encryption, and it's not the default setting. And so you have to go and set that up automatically. What end-to-end -end encryption does is it keeps it so that platforms are never like basically in receipt of any any cognizable form of your messages. They appear on your phone and they appear on the phone of the person that you're messaging. And so if they're not deleted and someone captures your phone, you're still kind of out of luck with end-to-end -end encryption. But what happens there is that Facebook can't be the one handing them over. They literally don't have anything to hand over in an end-to-end -end encryption. Um, scenario. And so that is what's happening. The bad part of that, obviously, is that a lot of people do a lot of bad things from child sexual abuse material to drug trade to like sex exploitation. There's all kinds of things that the end to end encryption enables as well as completely legitimate private um, conversations. Do we know anything about why it is that Facebook is making the choice to move to end to end in encryption as the, the more of the default setting? Well, it's certainly not in their business interests. It mm. kind of, it like actually cuts against that. Uh, and But uh, I think that one of the reasons is that it does in some ways possibly take some of the heat off of them when they get these exact type of scenarios. Right now, Meta is, Facebook is having a bad day in PR because of this mm. case, even though that like they did know nothing necessarily that they haven't done a million times before. Um, and cooperating with police this basically uh kicks the can down the road or just like allows them to avoid um doing this type of surveillance on behalf of police and that's the end of that mm. and, and obviously it's, it's in uh meta's interest i mean they get so much the social media platforms in general right they get so much criticism for they're, they're very much in a damned if they do damned if they don't with a lot of this kind of law enforcement compliance with, with uh with the you know, organizing of violence or terrorism, or violence-related January 6th political protests, et cetera, you know, they're criticized for allowing too much of it on their platform, but then they're also reporting all the time. Uh, they, they do report when they see violence being organized, like, constantly. Uh, so it, it, I, think, I think the average person has maybe not the, their awareness of what these social media companies are doing in order to comply with law enforcement is not, like, broadly publicized. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what I started off kind of talking about and trying to highlight. This is really a learning opportunity in a moment. Like none of this is super new or different. Um, if you follow this stuff all the time, like I do, or like a lot of people do, um, this is not this is not a huge sea change. This shouldn't have surprised you. I think I in fact said that to your producer when I like agreed to come on. But um, but. Uh, but I do think that it is um, a moment of education. We are in a huge norm setting kind of mm -hmm. uh, and cultural um, education moment around the privacy protections and around our literacy around these uh, areas and these platforms, what they're capable of. And this is one piece of that. And so it happens iteratively and it happens 
you know, piece by piece and we get it wrong and we correct ourselves. And I, I think that this is kind of the upside of this is hopefully people come out of this more aware of what they can do to protect themselves and what is actually happening between law enforcement and the platforms. What what might law enforcement have done in an era before social media, for instance, if they wanted to gather evidence on a crime like this? Could they they would have gotten the records from a credit card company if there was like a financial transaction for this kind of stuff with, with, with that? Is it you know in keeping with that kind of thing? Yep, there's a bunch of actually, it's a wonderful question. I was actually drafting a thread about this earlier today. Um, there's the Stored Communications Act, and there's the Electronic Communication Privacy Act, and there's Protection Act, and there's a uh, there's a there's a lot of stuff that um, that law enforcement could have utilized, and they do utilize those. All of the facts are now applied to social media, and so there is um, a fair amount of stuff that they could have done, um, but. And, and like likely will do if if things become end to end encrypted, they will have to find other ways to make these cases. Um, that's a really hard ask in an era of uh, for law enforcement, and they're really chasing some very bad bad guys. Um, when you have situations in which uh, people are completely anonymous and using end to end encryption, um, it is it is almost impossible to try and track some of these things. Hmm. Well, thank you for that, Kate. It is an interesting point that you raise about this not being novel, especially because even the abortion piece is not really a consequence of the Dobbs decision. Um, you know, the 22, 23 weeks was already after the 20-week barrier that existed uh, in Kansas pre-Roe being overturned. Uh, so this really does seem like one of those cases that does raise for people issues about whether or not they think the status quo is fair and just and good, but not necessarily implicating the more, more current news stories. Thank you for edifying us, Kate. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. There's a saying in trust and safety, which is typically kind of this area, which is uh, essentially, uh, my friend Charlotte says, uh, it is trade-offs and sadness. There mm -hmm. are really no good, uh, there are really no great outcomes, uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately, for a lot of this stuff. And uh, the more people kind of realize that these are philosophical issues and ethical issues almost, rather than technical issues, I think mm. the better we'll be. Mm. Thank you for that. And we'll have more rising for you after this. Senior political correspondent at Puck News, Tara Palmieri, tweeted yesterday in response to the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid. There's always a Jeffrey Epstein angle. Bruce Reinhardt, the magistrate in West Palm, who signed off on the warrant to search Trump's Mar-a-Lago, left the U.S. Attorney's Office to represent Epstein's staff, his first sex trafficking case. Hmm. Paul Mary also wrote Epstein's victims named Bruce Reinhardt in their Crime Victims' Rights Act case against the government, accusing him of using inside Justice Department info when he switched sides to work for Epstein. Paul Mary, who is also the host of Dr. Delirium and the Edgewood Experiments, joins us now to discuss. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So what we all want to know is, you know, what should we make of this of this connection here to Epstein? And, and is there anything to read into into that? Or is it just a kind of funny or unfortunate coincidence? You know, it's interesting. So yesterday I woke up in the morning and I read um, what everybody else did about who had actually signed off on this warrant, Bruce Reinhardt. And all of a sudden a light bulb went off in my head because, um, as you know, I hosted two podcasts on Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Broken Seeking Justice and Power the Maxwells. And they 
really dug into the Palm Beach case and all the corruption around it. Um, a big advantage that Jeffrey Epstein had was that he had so much more money than the victims he was uh, up against, right? Well, really the government who should have been prosecuting him. Um, and he hired a ton of people from inside the government to represent him. And at the time, I remember that Bruce Reinhardt ended up becoming one of his lawyers. He worked for the Southern District of Florida that was prosecuting him for this sex crime case in 2008. And that was the sweetheart deal that we all remember where he spent time in county jail half the time on work release, really didn't serve any time for the, the, the crime. Now, this isn't to say there's really any connection between the two, but I remember, wow, Bruce Reinhardt is back in federal government um, and he, was you know just so happened to be the person who signed off on this warrant um i know i have really dug right deep into this crime victims rights act case that the victim signed against the government because they were upset that they didn't know about epstein's sweetheart deal they didn't mm. know there was a plea deal um they felt like this was a huge injustice wow and um they re i remembered also that they named him in their suit they felt like it was unfair that epstein with all of his wealth was able to take you know civil servants and hire them to represent him and there's no proof that he took any inside justice department information but ostensibly if you're working for the other team and then you get bought to play for the other team you know a few things that you know so i'm not saying there's any like direct connection like epstein you know told told you know told him to raid this from the grave or anything but there's there's history there with reinhardt um and I think anybody who's ever worked with Epstein in some capacity or has some connection with him, including our pre uh, former president, Donald Trump, he, he was friends with Jeffrey Epstein. You know, it's always going to be kind of a black mark that you have on you. And there, there were no ethics uh, violations, illegal requirements, you know, moving from from civil service to help Epstein and then, you know, back to being a magistrate. There was nothing legal being violated there. I don't think so. I mean, it's hard to say that the, the victims tried to point it out to show that they felt like it, the government was unfair, um, that there was that, that Epstein had somehow bought everyone out. And I think if you listen to the podcast, you'll just see how um, he had literally hired if he couldn't hire people inside of the Justice Department, he hired all of their friends like Ken Starr, um, <laughs> who was his lawyer at the time and had, you know, contacts all the way at the top of the chain to the top of DOJ. And, and that's how far up his case went all the way wow. to the top. Um, and it just, I think the bigger story about Jeffrey Epstein is how much um, money can impact the Justice Department and how if you really have the resources, you can get a sweetheart deal in what is a pretty clear cut case of a guy who recruited so many young teenage girls um, for sex. And it's, it's, you know, it's despicable, but with enough money, you can hire some of the best lawyers in the world and have inside access to everyone who's investigating you. Yeah, Tara, this is what's so interesting about the posture of this. A lot of folks mm -hmm. who are defending Trump are raising this connection in a really kind of flat mm -hmm. way to say, this guy is obsessed, uh, this magistrate judge is associated mm -hmm. with Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein's a bad mm -hmm. guy. Therefore, we just, just shouldn't trust the judgment of the magistrate judge. And they're not making the connection that Trump has also been accused of sexual misconduct, that he also mm -hmm. had a relationship yep. with Jeffrey Epstein, that he is also an affluent person, the likes of which typically is able to uh, have their money uh -huh. work in their favor in the context of these kind of um, prosecutions. So what do you make of how um, the connection between Jeffrey Epstein and the magistrate judge is being kind of weaponized by conservative punditry right now? 
Yeah, you know, I, I thought about that before I tweeted it and pointed it out. Um, it was like, is this going to be used in some sort of conspiratorial way? Yeah. I don't think there's a conspiracy there. Yeah. I just think the guy worked for Jeffrey Epstein and he left the Justice Department to work for Jeffrey Epstein. That's a really big asterisk to have on your resume. Yeah. I haven't, I don't think, you know, I spoke to someone yesterday about it who I know knows Bruce uh, Reinhardt, who um, is a, uh, is an attorney, the state attorney in Palm Beach, uh, Dave Ehrenberg. And I asked him, what do you think of him? He said, he's thorough, he's extremely meticulous, fair, hardworking guy. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, this is something that like Bruce Reinhardt will always have to live with. I mean, he, he accepted money from Jeffrey Epstein at mm. some point in his life. And and by the way, Donald Trump will forever have to live with the fact that he was friends with Jeffrey Epstein, was regularly at his club, had been at Jeffrey Epstein's house before. Um, they were friends until they weren't. And it wasn't really over the girls. That was the reason that they that their friendship broke up. It was over. The fact that um, I think it was over a property dispute in West Palm Beach. They wanted the same piece of property. Mm. Well, they, it wasn't over the crime that they're not friends anymore. It was over a real estate transaction. Yeah. So, and I think it's also just a reminder of like how there. It's, I think to me, I'm like, wow. There's always a Jeffrey Epstein angle. Whenever you talk about the highest echelons of power in our country, there is a Jeffrey Epstein angle. Mm. Literally, no one. It's almost like no one goes untouched in that story. Well, of course, Donald Trump has, you know, said post uh, post uh, the warrant and post the uh, search that they broke into a safe. And that, of course, led some people to say, well, were they looking for the little black book? Did they find the little black book? And right. you know, that's obviously conjecture. But I'm curious, you know, what your insights are about why we don't have that little black book, why that seems to be such an inscrutable aspect of this whole thing, and whether or not there is some basis for conspiracy thinking about there being so many rich and powerful people involved that will never get to the bottom of who the client list is and that and that kind of information. Right. Well, you know, we definitely have Epstein's little black book. Mm -hmm. um, and that was pretty much the list of almost some of the most powerful people in the world. Well, I think a lot of the victims who I still stay in touch with are really um, disheartened. They were worried, though, last year, too, that nothing would happen to Glenn Maxwell. They want the government to continue to prosecute the um, Johns that were named, some of Epstein's very powerful friends that they say took part in the um, trafficking ring. Um, now, that's a totally separate issue from Donald Trump and what was in his safe, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think we don't know, really. And that's the problem is there's a vacuum. And because of that vacuum, you've got these conspiracy theories that are flying around, you know, and, and, and the right that supports Donald Trump, they're using that to hit their advantage. They're creating, they're creating narratives where there really aren't any right now. There are facts. The fact is that this guy, Bruce Reinhardt, left the government to work for Jeffrey Epstein, and the victims of Jeffrey Epstein tried to, tried, called him out on it in their lawsuit against the government, right? And then there are things that there's no connection to right now, and we don't know. And there, and there may be no connection at all. Hmm. And that vacuum created by, you know, the Justice Department by not being able to say what they're looking for because they're in an ongoing investigation is being, it's going to be filled by conspiracy theories. People pointing out some things that are tangible facts and trying to draw them together. I don't mm. think Jeffrey Epstein is doing anything from the grave in this mm. story. It just happens to be something that he did. It's a question mark on Bruce Reinhardt's character. But at the end of the day, if there's a warrant, I don't think his prior work with Jeffrey Epstein is going to impede on what he thinks is the right thing to do in terms of signing off on a warrant that's been prepared for him.
Well, right, from the grave, having influence from the grave is one thing, but I was sh somewhat shocked <laughs> by the influence he continued to have after the initial conviction, right? After after the initial, right. I, I mean, he, now he got a, a sentence that was far too lenient and he was released, but still on paper, these very, you know, very disgusting sex offenses, and then he's mm -hmm. able to kind of go right back to his wealthy influence peddling and connections to famous people for a period of time before then it all comes crashing down again. So, if, you know, if he was able, I guess if he was able to command that, even that is, un is impossible to believe to some extent. So that's, that's why the, right? Isn't that why the, the kind of conspiracies or the how could this be keeps coming up? Because even what we know as fact is so, is yeah. so wild. I, I would say so. I mean, I, after committing a crime like that, you would think that you would be in the outskirts of society, Persona never to be seen again. You should be in prison, frankly, for the rest of your life. Yes, like you yes. shouldn't even have, you shouldn't even be able to have dinner with Prince Andrew afterwards, right? Like that should not be an option in life. But that is the class injustice that we have in this country. And I think the fact I, I write about this in one of my pieces about the women who helped Jeffrey Epstein. It's like so many of them allowed them back into their homes and into their social circles and prop them up, some of these very powerful, influential women. And in a lot of ways, that gave him credibility in social circles. They're like, well, she's, you know, the mo one of the most connected uh, publicists in town, uh, Peggy Siegel, for example, who worked with Harvey Weinstein, all these Hollywood moguls, and she's throwing parties for Jeffrey Epstein, or she's inviting him on his invite list. So he must be okay, right? Mm. Some people I know said, well, he didn't really serve that much time, so the crime must have not been that bad. Well, mm. actually, what really happened was that he was able to influence that uh, outcome with all of his money and all of his resources and the team of 15 different lawyers with connections to every person in the Justice Department handling that right, handling that uh, case, including people who worked in the Justice Department that he hired. Um, so it's just one of the injustices like people in this country. It's a it's a it's a it's actually like a disease that we have. Mm. Hmm. Well, Tara Palmieri, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. On Tuesday, U.S. vaccine maker Novavax, their stock fell about 30% after the pharmaceutical company forecasted its revenue to be half of what it originally thought, $2 billion versus $4 billion for 2022. The news comes as demand for the vaccine is decreasing, and Novavax may have entered the market just a little too late. Despite receiving $1.6 billion from the government as part of former President Trump's Operation Warp Speed to develop a COVID vaccine, only some 7,300 shots have been given to the public. Mm. Yeah, it's not surprising to me that demand is down. I'm someone who, you know, has been, you know, very open and compliant to what the recommendations have been so far. But there doesn't seem to be much of a push to get people to get subsequent boosters if they think that's what we should do. There does seem to be some mixed messaging about whether to boost now or wait for the booster in the fall. We don't have that kind of community ramped up effort that we saw in the early days of COVID where, you know, we, you know, our hospitals and centers opened up all over the place for you to light them and get vaccines and, pu and public servants operating those in, in a way that felt very, you know, like we're all in this together. Uh, many people, uh, people who are uninsured are uh, no longer have access to free uh, vaccines and follow up the way that we had initially uh, because they're no longer re reimbursing hospitals for the uninsured uh, for new claims. And so there were a lot of incentives and, and messaging reasons why people 
might think that there's no more risk and not want to take advantage of the vaccine. Well, and I think the main issue is they have not yet approved this vaccine for probably the two categories of things that it would be most likely to be used for, which is booster. It's not approved for boosters. Mm. You're not supposed to take it as a booster. And it's also not approved yet uh, for kids. Mm. Again, I don't think either thing should be required, just to be clear. But, you know, this is a vaccine that does not use the mRNA technology. Um, so if you were hesitant for that reason, this might be the vaccine for you. Um, probably some people who are hesitant about vaccines, if they were hesitant before, they're still going to be hesitant. But, you know, some people who actually, aren't to be Perfectly fair, I might fall into this category. I was vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. I then I got COVID sometime after, and so I've never gotten boosted. Um, I would probably be more likely to take this vaccine as a booster um, if I'm going to get boosted, which is something that would, I would probably reasonably eventually do. But you're not supposed to do it for that purpose yet. Yeah. So there's a you know there's a there's a sale they're not making because of the kind of regulatory burden hasn't that, been cleared that's yet. That's a really good point. If most people, which is true, if most people already have their initial vaccine shot and this is not approved for right. follow-ups, I don't know <laughs> why they would anticipate there being a lot of demand. Yeah, it's not really not really good thinking. Um, I mean, it shows that a, a lot of the public health kind of epidemiologists have been very, uh, who, by the way, all, all along are like, you know, stick... Stick to your lane. You know, we're the experts on, on disease and all of that. But then they have no problem veering wildly out of their lane to do, like, social psychology and, like, the, the you know, what, what, what influences human behavior? You know, what, what can we do? Because there was a lot of, we, we didn't want to, uh, they would say, well, we, we were, you know, hesitant to go all out on boosters because we didn't want to, to, uh, to erode public confidence in the vaccines, which is, like, how do you know that erodes public? Like, you're not an actor. You haven't ran yeah. polls or surveys to know that this. Just do what's in the best interest of public health. Yeah. But they're not doing that. Yeah. I mean, I'm also curious whether or not, you know, if this really is intended to target that group of people who never got vaccinated because they did have these concerns about an mRNA vaccine, rightly or wrongly, if there has been a push from, you know, the kind of media sources and the political sphere that, that was a kind of a landing round and a home for that kind of skepticism to go ahead and get these vaccines now that they're they're out there. And to the extent that the the government wants to do these kind of messaging campaigns, I wonder if they could do more to reach out to folks that were skeptical of the pre-existing vaccines and try to encourage people to go ahead and take advantage of Novavax being on the market if they haven't already been vaccinated. The issue is that this does feel like part of the the broader approach of the Biden administration, which is to pretend like the COVID pandemic is over and a non-concern. We did it. Mission accomplished. Mission, mission accomplished. Unfurl the banners. Right. And despite there being, what, 3,000 COVID deaths today. I mean, these are... This that was still... part of the Donald Donald Trump ad, which is, I mean, that is going to be a damning statistic that is going to come up yeah. if there's another political contest between the two of them, which is a not unreasonable, likely future, um, that there were more deaths from COVID yeah. during the year Joe Biden was president, yeah. first year of his presidency, than there was during the last year yeah. of Donald Trump's presidency. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you live that? Especially because so much of, of what Biden promised was a return to normalcy based on a proactive, pro-vaccine, pro-other mitigation efforts. You know, we were, the party of science is stepping up to the plate yeah. and we're putting this thing to bed. Well, Trump first has to get through that Republican primary where that vaccine issue is not necessarily something that where he's actually it hurts on. him because he's the more pro vaccine of the of right, the candidates. If right, he's up right, against DeSantis. right. Fascinating wow. times. All right. We'll have more rising after these messages.
Last Thursday, a horrific crash in the L.A. area left a pregnant woman, her infant son, her boyfriend, and two other women died in this just awful crash that you can see here. Uh, so the driver, her name was Nicole Lorraine Linton. She crashed into several other vehicles. She has survived, but uh, six other people dead. She ran a red light, as you can see, while going what looks like 90 miles per hour. Uh, that was according to some reports. You can see you know, the other cars, how fast they're moving versus what she does there. Eight other people injured in the incident. Linton suffered only minor injuries. Uh, the, she was a traveling ICU nurse who has since been charged with six counts of murder, five counts of vehicular manslaughter, with gross negligence, and is being held on a $9 million bail. Linton faces a 90-year prison sentence if convicted. Sadly, it's not Linton's first tragic crash. The LA Times reports that Linton, a traveling nurse, again from Houston, had been involved in 13 other car wrecks, including a 2020 crash that left two cars totaled. While authorities investigate whether drugs or alcohol were involved, Linton's lawyer said that she has a history of profound mental health issues. So obviously we need to know what's going on. I, I mean, that looked like, um, I, I, my guess would have been that she was intoxicated, but uh, maybe something else. I mean, but. we don't even... Uh, we don't even need that. The fact of the matter is, for whatever reason, she has persistently demonstrated herself to be a reckless driver. And I don't know how you feel about this from a kind of libertarian regulatory perspective, but it seems to me to be a real no-brainer. Uh, if someone has that extreme number of violations and has obviously presented themselves as such a risk to the public, to no longer be permitted to drive. Oh, that's, yeah, no, that doesn't violate libertarianism whatsoever. If you've, if you've been in 13 other car crashes, you should not. I mean, people get their licenses suspended for minor things all the time. This is not minor at all. This is, this is, a, this one and neither is a public was her, her nuisance, previous uh, accidents. Neither were they minor. Right, right. Um, so there's going to be a lot of questions about what was the legal regime in those cases? Was she charged with anything? Is this an example of lenient prosecution? Is this an example of, I, I mean, I don't know. It's so unfathomable that this would happen so many other times, including recently, and not have her license like permanently revoked. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess she could have been driving without a license. I guess we could I find guess that she could out. Have been, but... like, I, and I have, I have seen and known people to, who have avoided uh, efforts to keep them from driving. I have witnessed in my life people who's used their girlfriends to get around the breathalyzers that were court mandated in their car. You know, to start you have to when you have to blow to start your car because you've oh. been in these kinds of things so much. I have witnessed people do workarounds, and it's people are going to do what they're going to do. But I do wish we lived in a world where people had access to better public transportation, so that taking away their right to drive didn't affect their ability to earn an income. Sure. I wish we lived in a world that had better mental health support. So if that truly was at the root of what is going on with this woman, that could have been addressed. I wish there were a lot of things that had been different, um, but sometimes you can't get past um, human behavior and risk-taking and um, just bad acts. So uh, certainly I don't expect for her to escape without some significant I mean, they should throw the around. book at her. This isn't, you know, you feel, I think there's a natural uh, impulse to feel bad for people who, you know, who are at fault in, in car wreck, if it's at fault, but it's an accident or something. Yeah. And there's significant loss of life. You know, how do you Sometimes live with yourself for that? Like the brandy, but brandy this is not, crash, this yeah. is not an act. I mean, and, and she know she should have known that she shouldn't drive at all whatever her mental health problem or whatever whatever it is yeah and it's just uh yeah i saw that footage the other day and it's just i think it's a gas station actually there that might be yeah. responsible for some of the flip but if you hit at that 
and the, I mean, the, the baby went like flying out of the that's windshield, horrible. and the eyewitnesses say they, they found the bed, they knew it was dead uh, immediately. That's it's just a really, really awful thing um, to happen, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, so want to learn more about it and make sure she should face uh, the full extent of the law for that. Tomorrow on Rising, writer James Kerchick will be here to discuss how Hungary's prime minister became the most formidable figure in American conservatism. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can also catch us on the Plex TV app. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.